Welcome to Ventricles, a podcast of the science, religion, and culture program at Harvard Divinity School. My name is Shireen Hamza. This episode is part of a series about the history of technology and its relationship to politics. I sit down with Eden Medina, a professor of computing, law, and history at Indiana University, Bloomington, to speak about a technology that played a formative role in Chile, Project Cybersyn. One of the foundational ideas in the history of science and technology is that they are shaped by social and political realities, which doesn't mean that science isn't true or doesn't work. It just isn't neutral or unconnected from society. Project Cybersyn is a great way to explore this idea. It was an innovative system of communications designed to enable a politically innovative system of government the democratic socialism of Salvador Allende, who became the president of Chile in 1970. This system was well known even beyond the government. At one point, Chileans even wrote songs about Project Cybersyn. Today, it has inspired science fiction novels and art installations. So how did a system of government communications become so relevant? We'll start our story with a moment of political tension in which those who opposed President Allende's government went on strike. So in a nutshell, uh, what happens is the Allende government uh, has been becoming uh, increasingly fraught and members of the opposition are becoming increasingly active and wanting to bring the government to an early end. So in October of 1972, um, the government tries to create a trucking industry in southern Chile. The private trucking industry views it as a threat. The right had been putting in place mechanisms to begin a strike in hopes of bringing the government to a premature end. Within southern Chile, the strike starts very quickly. 12,000 truck drivers go on strike in sympathy. Soon after that, we have 40,000 truck drivers that are striking in sympathy. And in essence, this is a demonstration of class power. It's a demonstration that people want the government to end and that they have coordinated in order to do it. Um, it's not just truck drivers. Um, lawyers, doctors, engineers are striking in sympathy. And so as a result, people who are on the ground, people who are working in factories, who can't seem to get their goods distributed, right, who can't get the spare parts for their machines, um, they start to figure out very creative solutions of how to solve this problem. More traditional analyses of the Allende period rightfully credit these very creative initiatives that are unfolding on the ground for helping the government survive, as well as the president deciding to bring the military into the cabinet. And so this is where the research that I did in my book comes in. How was the government communicating with the people on the ground, right? How was, I don't know, how was information about fuel, about where goods are, about where an available truck is located, right? Where is that information coming from and how is it getting through to government decision makers? Um, and I look at an information network um, that was created for a very unorthodox project called Project CyberSyn, how that infrastructure, which was a telex network, allowed these messages to, to go back and forth and helped connect the vertical communication channels of government to the horizontal communications that were unfurling on the shop floor and ultimately helped the government survive. That was a lot of information. But don't worry. We will return to an explanation of telex machines and Project Cybersyn in just a few minutes.
just to to give listeners who may be unfamiliar with Chile uh, and Chilean politics a quick introduction, who was President Allende and what sort of brought about the political situation in which the strike unfurled? So Salvador Allende was a socialist. He was a medical doctor. Um, he had fought for Chile's brief, short-lived socialist government, its first socialist government in 1932, um, for his cousin, Marmaduke Grove Vallejo. Um, he had run for the Chilean presidency three times before he was finally elected in 1970. And when he was elected, he was elected with a particular vision of a peaceful road to socialist change. So what that meant is that instead of bloodshed, Socialism would occur in Chile through democratic elections. It would exist within the confines of the existing constitution. It would recognize rule of law. It would preserve civil liberties, including freedom of speech and freedom of the press. Um, and one of the phrases that was heard is that the revolution would occur um, with empanadas and red wine. <laughs> <laughs> so it would be painless and it would have a distinctively Chilean flavor. Um, so Allende came into office with this commitment to a peaceful road to democratic socialism, but his policies, some of his policies, as you might imagine, were controversial. Um, so among them, he wanted to redistribute income. He wanted to nationalize the most important parts of the economy. Um, and there were people who were not happy with that. Um, you also have to remember that this is in the middle of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. So this mm -hmm. is the U.S. versus the USSR. Um, and there is a lot of fear of socialism, period, right? So while many people thought this might be a political third way and they were very excited about it, um, other people had visions that were akin to George Orwell, right? Or, you know, that people would lose their liberties, lose their property. And this was exacerbated by increasing inflation, consumer shortages. But yeah, it was, a, it was an increasingly fraught period. I mean, this is a particular moment in which Chile is innovating politically. Absolutely. That's Juanita Becerra, a PhD student in Harvard's Department of the History of Science. But part of your book also argues that there's technological innovation mm -hmm. happening hand in hand yes. with the political regime. And so um, can you share with us a little bit more about the role of cybernetics? Well, starting with what is cybernetics what is and cybernetics? why was it important at that time? Sure. Um, so cybernetics, uh, the term wasn't originated by MIT mathematician Norbert Wiener, although it's often associated with him. He published a book in 1948 um, called Cybernetics or Communication and Control in the Animal and the Machine. And it was it was a crossover hit. It was very popular. Um, it went through multiple printings. Um, but in essence, the book was very interested um, in feedback and control. Mm -hmm. It was interested in exploring the commonalities between um, biological, mechanical, electrical systems. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, Norbert Wiener didn't believe that social systems were a subject for cybernetics because you couldn't get the statistical data that you would need in order to make predictions from for social systems. Ah. So, you know, that's something that gets left out. But cybernetic ideas went into a number of directions and influenced a number of different fields. So in my book, I look at a particular strain of cybernetic thought that enters management. So management cybernetics. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, in the context of Chile, cybernetic thought um, arrived as part of efforts to figure out how to manage the growing nationalized sector of the economy. 
Okay. So what Allende wanted to do as part of his platform was bring the most important industries under state control, but the government had never done that before. So it was an extremely complicated and difficult process. Um, and there were those in the government who thought that cybernetics, the science of communication and control, might be able to make that possible. I see. So maybe to use the strike as a particular example of how it was implemented, mm -hmm. what were the kinds of uh, technologies and infrastructure that allowed surveillance, uh, communication, both as you described vertically and horizontal communication during the strike? The book tells the history of Project Cybersyn, right, which was a project that was set up to help give the government better control over the growing nationalized sector of the economy. Um, what was used in the October strike was uh, a backbone of communication um, set up by telex machines, a bunch of telex machines communicating with each other. Sorry, what are telex machines? What are telex machines? That's a great question. Um, we don't even really think of fax machines anymore, much less telex machines. Um, so when I think of a telex machine, I think of it as a cross between a typewriter and a fax machine um, because okay. it's able to send messages over a long distance. But when the messages came through, they had a loud clacking noise, right, which makes me think more of a perhaps of a typewriter. Um, telex machines could work because you could punch um, your message into tape, which you would then feed into the machine, and that would you know guide what characters would be printed on the other end. You could feed your tape in and have your message come out at the other side, but you also could type messages in and have delayed um, but communication with another party. Um, that would be another option. Um, so in Chile, they had to they wanted to build a computer network to try to regulate the economy, but they only had access to one mainframe computer, mm. which I think is this really difficult engineering problem. Um, and they solved it by creating a network of telex machines. Perhaps one question that's interesting for our listeners is who was operating these machines or or who would who was in charge of the of making sure that you know the punches were right going <laughs> into the telex machine and so on. So the idea for Project Cybersyn came from a young Chilean engineer who was 28 years old at the time who was put in charge of managing the technical aspects of the nationalization process. So really, he was the person who was the brainchild confronting this issue. He brought a British cybernetician named Stafford Beer to Chile, um, who was an expert in applying cybernetics in this domain. So, you know, in terms of the, the ideas, uh, Beer and Flores were at the helm. In terms of actually who was punching in the data... One of the things that's different about computers then versus computers now is, you know, we're talking about large mainframe computers. And so in this time, Chile had a centralized state computer agency, right, that was controlled. It controlled the state computer resources. Mm -hmm. And so computer scientists, uh, you know, computer programmers who knew who were working for the state computer enterprise, um, they were the ones who were putting punch cards into the machine and getting the data back out, right, and sending it so that it could be put into um, the, the telex machines and sent out. So instead of each of us with our laptops, right, sending messages back and forth via email, it was a little more centralized, right, even though the creators claimed that it was a more decentralized kind of communication. Yeah, the thought of the computer's physical location being very, very relevant mm -hmm. and the physical location of the telex machines being kind of interwoven with the government, it kind of prompts um, another question, which is 
how ordinary people in Chile actually did, once they did find out about this kind of mm -hmm. communication system, um, how did they think about this technology? So it's a complicated story. Project Cybersyn was this technology of contradictions. So on one hand, you have the British cybernetician who's saying Chile needs to claim it as a populist technology, right? It has to be a form of science for the people. We need pamphlets and murals and folk songs. And he convinces one of Chile's most famous folk singers, Ankil Parra, to write this song about the system called Litany for a Computer and a Baby About to be Born, right? So that's one side of the story. The other side of the story are the Chileans who are on the ground um, dealing with the politics, the unraveling politics of the popular unity situation. Um, and some of them are saying, look, if we make this openly political, the right is going to attack it. The opposition is going to attack it, right? Um, and so if it's not ready to go, that gives them fodder to attack us. So actually, we should try to make it more technical, right? We should try to make it lower key. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when Beer does get permission to make the system public, he's scooped. He's scooped by a British publication who presents the system as secret and akin to Big Brother. And that gets repeated within Chile as well. So the, the Chileans were right in their intuition um, that it would be perceived as a way to attack the government. To return to the, the story we started out with, in which tens of thousands of people were on strike in Chile, mm -hmm. now that we kind of all have a sense of what Project CyberSign looked like a little bit, mm -hmm. um, how was it? deployed and what what changed in Chile after the strike? After the strike. Um, so again, Project Cybersyn was a technology of contradictions. So what happens after the strike, um, the government recognizes the value of the telex network. They say this was useful. It was useful to be able to communicate in this dynamic way. It was useful to be able to connect to you know, different parts of the country, what was taking place on the shop floor. It had value but it was not seen as part of Project Cybersyn because Project Cybersyn was more than the telex network. It had a customized set of software. It had a very futuristic operations room. Um, it had an economic simulator, right? So the telex network was only one part. It's recognized as, as a form of, of communication and helping the, the government in that way. But in the process, it becomes further away from its cybernetic origins. So more people start to work on the project, um, but they see it as something that's technically useful, mm -hmm. right? They see it as for its technical value rather than bringing a cybernetic approach, right? A holistic approach to the problem of control that perhaps could address economic problems, right? So mm -hmm. that's one part of the story. Another part of the story is that the day-to-day -day life uh, in Chile during the Allende period becomes more and more fraught. Um, you know, the government has seen that, you know, people were trying to bring it to, a, to an early end. The government moves into a defensive position. And Fernando Flores, who before was the champion, the origin, you know, the person who, who made the, the project possible, um, he starts to see it as not as relevant to the mm -hmm. government, right? In fact, he has this, this, um, uh, this kind of insight where he says something along the lines of, if they're trying to kill you, cybernetics is not useful, mm. right? So I mean, the stakes have gone up in his mind. Um, so that's one part of the story. And then another part of the story is that the system uh, becomes public knowledge. And once it goes out into the public, um, really people start to, to 
throw their Cold War fears at the system. Um, so you see criticisms, likening the system to Big Brother, to something out of George Orwell, to a secret project, to something that's going to take away Chilean civil liberties, to something that's going to destroy the economy, right? The same criticisms that are being leveled against the Allende government are being leveled against Project Cybersyn, um, just as the team suspected would happen. I'm very interested in what you just said about um, the the kind of connection that people uh, were making mm -hmm. between political regime and the technology mm -hmm. but um, if we step back a little bit and think about the way in which technology is playing out in this mm -hmm. story what would you say we're learning new about technology I think we learned so much um, so first of all I think it's important to recognize the value of looking at technology in places like Latin America I think when we look at technology in different parts of the world in different political contexts we see different possibilities and these possibilities can inspire as well as educate so I think it is very important to do to tell those kinds of stories right and to not make technology um, something that only occurs in the United States um, or in other places like Europe Um, and part of the reason that I found um, in telling the history of Project Cybersyn is I think it has lessons for how we think about computation today. One of the ways um, that I see the project as, as being inspirational, telex machines were not super advanced or super sophisticated technologies at the time that the Chilean government was using them. They mm. were an antiquated technology at that time. But if you do creative engineering and you think about the organization that your technology is going to go into, you can do amazing things. And I think oftentimes we think that technology has to be the, the most advanced, the most sophisticated. We plan our technologies to become obsolete very quickly because mm. we're obsessed with the new, but I think we can repurpose the old and we can repurpose the old in very creative ways and Project Cybersyn is an example of that. Um, another way that I think that we can think about Project Cybersyn uh, as inspirational for our current moment, when the designers were creating the system, we had computers with substantially less capability. So, and you know, they're collecting economic data, but they could only collect, say, 10 to 12 indices per factory, which meant decisions had to be made on the front end about what data was necessary, right? What data had to be collected. It wasn't, let's collect all of it because we can. Mm. And I would like to see a return to more thoughtful engineering practices up front. Um, not only, I mean, of course, we should give users control of their data. I mean, that's something that we're seeing um, right now, the importance of doing that. Um, but from an engineering perspective, to be more thoughtful about what exactly do you need, and that's what you should collect. I think that there's, a, there's an ethics there as well. well um, I think that that's, that's a really fascinating um, and kind of prescient conclusion for people making technologies, which sometimes... Um, historians are not always in conversation with makers of technology, so that's really important. Um, also, I'm curious about kind of uh, going back to what you said about Latin America, the specificity of Latin America as a site of technological innovation. Um, do you, uh, you, you've written about this elsewhere. Uh, would you be willing to talk a little bit about your framework for studying the history of technology in Latin America? What to do and also what not to do? Um, I think the first part of the methodology is to look, <laughs> right? You know, so to get over the bias that technology is only created by certain places. Um, technology is created everywhere, 
it's created everywhere in all kinds of different contexts. Um, so you have to you have to recognize that and you have to look. So so that's that's step one. Um, I mean, elsewhere I've talked about the importance of moving beyond uh, an imported magic framework, um, which is a way of thinking about technology, that technology travels from north to south. Those in the north are the producers. Those in the south are the consumers. Um, and that just doesn't stand up to historical scrutiny. When we, when we look at the past, we see that technologies travel. Inspiration comes from everywhere. Um, experts travel, machines travel, ideas travel. Um, and in order to understand that in all of its richness, we cannot have an imported magic kind of framework. Um, can I ask you to expand on why magic of all words? Sure. Um, so I co-edited a volume um, called Beyond Imported Magic uh, with Ivan da Costa Marquez and Christina Holmes. Um, Ivan is a, is a scholar in, in Brazil and Christina is a scholar in Canada. And Ivan used to direct the state computing enterprise in Brazil. Um, and he has, you know, a long relationship. He's a former computer scientist. And he told me that, you know, back in the 70s in Brazil, computers were referred to as forms of imported magic. Mm. So they were, you know, technologies that were, they came from the north, right? They, they were a little bit mysterious. They could do these amazing things. Um, and they were always from somewhere else. So they were a kind of imported magic. Um, I think the term imported magic also speaks to another Latin American stereotype, which is magical realism. And I think when we're talking about Latin America, oftentimes we view it in these magical realist terms. Um, but it's more than that, right? So kind of embracing it, but also pushing for more. Um, I think magic works on both of those levels. So if we're trying to think outside this frame of, of framework of beyond imported magic, how do you see Latin American people or Latinx people here in the United States benefiting from this kinds of stories mm -hmm. specifically? Mm -hmm. I mean, I study Chile, and so it's exciting to me, first of all, to see that there is a, there's a wealth of scholarship that's now being generated on, on the history of, of Chilean science and technology, which is fabulous because we need to understand science and technology in different places, moments, contexts, right? So, so one of the things we need to keep in our mind is that context matters, specificity matters, right? Oftentimes we speak in generalizations in terms of global south or, or post-colonial, um, but that, that takes us away from the specificity. Um, so I think as historians, we can really bring that, that nuance back, um, and that's wonderful. I think technology, it contributes to the way that histories are told right? So for example, in Chile, um, Project Cybersyn, now that this history is better known, uh, has inspired a science fiction book, right? It's inspired uh, installations in the presidential palace. There is an installation that's going to go up soon um, in a major cultural center in Santiago, right? Um, there are many ways of telling history, right? There are many facets of history, and this is also part of it. Listeners, Thank you for joining us for this episode of Ventricles about the history of technology in Latin America and what can be gained from studying technology and innovation outside of its stereotypical settings in Euro-America. For more, tune in to our next episode about the history of the birth control pill, which largely takes place in Mexico. Please check out the bibliography for this episode online at the Science, Religion, and Culture Program website src.hds.edu.
www.harvard.edu. A special thank you for this music to the Overseas Ensemble, a collaboration between composer Paid Vanka and Sarigama, a group of Sri Lankan musicians who came together while working in Beirut. <laughs>